ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. She may be opinionated, she may be somewhat talkative, but there's one thing she's not, and that's a liar. Stand up, Ross. There's a theory of opening statements that's called the contract theory is that you're making a promise to the jury and if you if you fail at that point they're going to hold it against you if you don't carry out your promises. Game on. The hot car murder trial of Justin Ross Harris is finally underway. But once again, it's the trial of stops and starts. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I've been attending the trial in Brunswick, Georgia, because a fair and impartial jury couldn't be found in Cobb County. Then, three days in, we heard this. Overnight, the eye of the powerful storm moved north. A state of emergency is now in effect for 13 coastal Georgia counties. Yes, with Hurricane Matthew headed toward Brunswick, schools were closed and government buildings were shuttered. On Wednesday... Judge Mary Staley Clark told jurors they could take Thursday and Friday off to prepare for the storm. Many on the coast headed inland, but Staley Clark announced she wasn't going anywhere. But I'm going to stay. Never been through a hurricane before. You're supposed to have a party and eat Oreos. That's what I've been told. Hey, I've already been way too close to a couple of major hurricanes. So I'll admit it, I got the heck out of Dodge well before Matthew was anywhere close. And on the drive back about halfway home, I learned that Georgia's governor had ordered the mandatory evacuation of six coastal counties. That included Glenn County, where the trial is being held. And I learned later that day that the judge and others associated with the trial had followed the governor's instructions. They left the area just like I did. We are recording this just hours before Matthew is expected to inundate the Georgia coast. I only hope it doesn't cause widespread damage across the beautiful Golden Isles while I'm gone. As for the Ross-Harris trial, it's scheduled to resume this week, if the courthouse is still standing, and if there's power, and if the jurors have made it back from the evacuation. But that's now. Let's talk about then, last week to be precise. The trial began Monday with a blistering opening statement by lead prosecutor Chuck Boring. By the time he was finished, I had the notion Harris was doomed. The next morning, though, balance was restored to the universe, or at least to the courtroom. In his opening statement, Harris's lead defense attorney, Maddox Kilgore, came out of the blocks every bit as strong as Boring had, and maybe a bit stronger. Let's hear from the prosecution first, just as the jury did. But it's important to note one thing right now. 
The prosecution, to my surprise, dropped no new bombshells. It disclosed no smoking gun. Boring, his voice often filled with disdain, was methodical. And let me warn you in advance that during his opening, there were problems with the courtroom audio. The sound quality is not the best and parts of it could not be recorded. Boring offered up a mountain of circumstantial evidence that he said showed Harris intentionally killed his son. To obtain a conviction, the prosecution will have to prove Harris guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But Boring, brimming with confidence, told jurors he'd do better than that. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of this evidence, there's going to be no doubt that he is guilty of every charge in this indictment. Boring led off with the kind of dirt that may well sink Ross Harris. As he ate breakfast with his son on Cooper's last day alive, Harris was posting a message on an app called Whisper. Breakdown listeners will surely remember the exchange Harris had with the woman he'd never met. Boring explained to jurors what Harris did that morning on his cell phone. Responding to a post on an application called Whisper, where supposedly you can post anonymous thoughts and things like that. On that morning, someone posted this. I hate being married with kids. The novelty is worn off, and I have nothing to show for it. Harris's response? I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. That post, Boring said, helps prove that Harris intentionally killed his son. Improving malice, the direct evidence. Messaging on the morning of the murder that he needed an escape from his son, five minutes from getting just back. Malice. There's nothing more malicious than what was done to this child's body, baking in that car for seven hours. The number of hours in that car, every second, every minute, every hour that he chose to leave that child out there is malice. Throughout his opening, Boring repeated Harris's We Need Escapes line six times. You can bet the jury won't forget it, and you can bet they'll hear it again, and again, and again. Of that post, Boring said this, and I quote, Those were the words of a killer, the words that reveal the motive for this man who killed his child in the most horrific, torturous, unimaginable way, unquote. Harris killed his son to remove an obstacle that kept him from living a single life and swinging with different women, Boring said. By the time of Cooper's death, Harris had escalated his reckless sexual promiscuity to a point where there was no turning back. He was sending photos of his genitals to underage girls and asking them to send him nude photos in return. He was sleeping with prostitutes. On one occasion, he showed up unannounced at a Walmart outside of Atlanta to surprise a woman he'd been exchanging messages with. He got her to get in his car so they could make out, Boring said. Boring made it a point to let jurors know what Harris was doing in the hours after he'd left Cooper in his car to die. Messaging over 30 people, most of them women, most of them about sex, women that he had met before, women that he had professed love before, women he'd met online and exchanged comments about being unhappy in his marriage. On that day, while his child was cooking to death, also messaging a girl he met when she was 16 who was still trying to get pictures of her vaginal area from her. The case, Boring said, is about death, deception, and a double life. What you're going to see is, not only on that day was he messaging women constantly, that he was leading a double life. I miss being single. I'm at a breaking point just a couple weeks before this. 
messaging underage girls as young as 15, this being his obsession, taking risk after risk after risk. Boring detailed some of the incriminating evidence jurors will see and hear. Point one, Harris shed no tears at the crime scene, he said. Point two, Harris never called 911 after he said he'd realized he'd left Cooper in the back of his car all day. Three, after placing Cooper on the pavement and fumbling with CPR, Harris walked away from his child while another man tried to revive him. Four, once placed in a squad car, Harris cried out in ways that some witnesses found to be insincere. What else did Harris do after he was put in the back of the squad car? Boring, offering a dose of cruel irony, said, this is what Harris told Cobb police officer Jackie Piper while he sat in the cruiser. Calm, cool, and collected. What does he complain about? Is he screaming? Can I see my son? What's going on? No. You know what he does? He complains that it's hot in the back of the car. Complains that it's hot in the back of the car. And what did Harris do while Piper transported him to police headquarters? Him started to chat her up like they're at a bar. So, how long have you been in law enforcement? Said, Sir, I can't talk to you right now. And when they finally get to the police department, he starts chatting her up again. Not the behavior of someone who unknowingly left their child, negligently left their child in the car to die. Gut-wrenching pain. The worst pain imaginable. No. Boring also told jurors about something that's always made me wonder about this case. How Harris parked his car that morning in the office lot, and how he did that without noticing Cooper, who was sitting in a rear-facing car seat in the center of the back seat. He pulls around, and he stops. This car does not have a backup camera. What does he do? He sees this spot where there is an island right there where nobody can park and a car that's already parked. He backs up and around in between two vehicles with no backing camera and then pulls into the spot. Boring said when Harris was finally interviewed at Cobb Police Headquarters, he tried to con the cops into believing the whole thing was an accident. This was not some distraught father this was somebody who knew exactly what he had done and was trying to get out of it. During this statement to the detectives, the defendant tried to talk his way out of this crime. He was not honest with the detectives. He thought he was going to outsmart everyone. And his plan was revealed and laid out in this interview. Boring's opening appeared to be extremely effective and forceful for about an hour. Then he began repeating himself a bit and appeared to lose some of the jurors' attention. But his ending was powerful. There can be no more cruel and excessive physical pain than what this child suffered. The case is about Cooper. The case is about what was done to him. And this case is about who is guilty for doing it. At the end of this case, ladies and gentlemen, we're just going to ask you to do a couple of simple things. Use your good common sense. Use your good common sense with all the evidence in this case and hold this man responsible. We're trying to escape from one life and into another. And killing a child in one of the most unimaginable, horrible ways. And now let's turn to the opening statement by the defense. 
Kilgore was supposed to give his opening right after Boring's that Monday afternoon. But because of an issue with a juror, I told you about the stops and starts, right? Kilgore had to wait until Tuesday morning. Instead of 15 minutes, he had another 15 hours, and he seemed to make the best of the extra time he had to prepare. Right off the bat, Kilgore told jurors what was not at issue. First thing I want to tell you is that the state is uh, right about one very important matter, and that is Ross Harris is responsible for his child's death. Ross is responsible. It's his fault. There's no doubt about it. He never blamed anybody but himself. What kind of words did he use at the scene? My God, what have I done? I killed my boy. I'm so sorry, Cooper. I'm so sorry. It's the biggest mistake of my life. This is my fault. What have I done? I've killed my son, but he was responsible. But what you're going to see during this trial is that responsible isn't the same thing as criminal. And the evidence is going to show you during this trial that Ross loved that little boy more than anything. Cooper's death was an accident. It was always an accident. Harris's reckless and immoral sexual behavior will also be an open book, Kilgore said. You're going to hear a lot of really bad things about Ross Harris. You're going to hear about his sexually immoral behavior. And he's earned every bit of the shame that's coming his way on that regard. You're going to hear that Ross used social media apps to exchange very gross and graphic, filthy sexual talk with people. You're going to hear about all kind of nasty internet chats. You're going to hear about infidelity. You're going to hear about adultery. And that is Ross was unfaithful to his wife. And you're going to hear about that. You're going to hear about very um, embarrassing graphic sexual matters and vulgar language. But Ross's sex life, no matter how perverse and nasty and wrong that we think it is, it doesn't have a thing in the world to do with the fact that he forgot that little boy. Nothing. They're completely unrelated. Got nothing to do with each other. After Kilgore got that out of the way, he went on the attack. He condemned the prosecution's theory of the case and accused it of misinterpreting Harris's behavior before and after Cooper's death. But Kilgore reserved his strongest criticism for lead investigator Phil Stoddard. For the jury, he even pointed out the detective who was sitting behind the prosecution in the front row of the courtroom gallery. Stoddard, Kilgore said, supplied false testimony about Harris's actions from the get-go. For example, Stoddard once testified that Harris shed no tears and displayed no real emotion on the day Cooper died. That just isn't true, Kilgore said. He then played for the jury snippets of a video taken of Harris after he arrived at the Cobb police station. He wept bitterly and cried out to God, cried out in disbelief what he had done. 
Let me show you what he did when they put him in that room. He played another video taken after his wife, Leanna, arrived. With his wife, and he was out of eyeshot of the police. He broke down and wept inconsolably, crying out for his son, crying out for God to help him. Let me show you what you're going to see, just a little bit of it. So sorry. I'm so sorry. I loved him so much. I loved him so much. I'm so sorry your son's gone. I know that he's in heaven right now, my boy. I can't believe I did this. I'm never going to see my boy again. Are you going to make it? I'm worried about you. I'm so sorry. It hurts so bad. God. Please forgive me. Please help me. Please help my wife. Please help me. Please let me trade places with Cooper. They know I love that little boy. It hurts so bad. It hurts to my core. It's my fault. It's all me. I'm going to miss him so much. Oh, God, what have I done? What have I done? Defense attorney Kilgore also said Cobb police officers perpetuated perhaps the most damning misconception of the case, that Harris had researched how long it takes a child to die in a hot car. Those sworn statements and testimony are false. They are false. Ross Harris never said those things. He never told police that he had recently researched how long it takes someone to die inside a vehicle, what temperature it needs to be. He never, he never told police that. And more importantly, he never did it. He never did it. And the police knew it. They knew he didn't do it. But they swore under oath over and over and over that he did. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song 
and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Kilgore told jurors it's easy for them to blame Harris now for what happened on June 18, 2014. That's because of hindsight. They know what happened. But Harris had no idea his little boy was in the car that day, Kilgore said. No matter how disgusted and angry we are with what he was doing while his son was out in the car, it um, is not going to change the fact that Ross didn't know. See, we're, we're angry about that, and we are disgusted by that because we know something that he didn't know. As he sat in his office on his phone, like every other day, texting away, saying, God knows what, we know something he didn't know. And that's why we're so angry about it. That's why we're so disgusted about it. But it doesn't change the fact that the time he was doing it, it was clueless. Kilgore ended his opening by letting jurors know who was going to be one of the most important witnesses at trial. Harris's ex-wife, Leanna Taylor. There's one person, one person in this world who has got every reason in the world to hate that guy, to despise that guy. Because that guy over there, Ross Harris, he took everything from her. He cheated on her. He humiliated her in front of the whole world. He's responsible for the death of her only little boy. She ought to hate him. She ought to despise the heck out of him. And nobody would blame her. But you're going to hear from Ross's wife. If they don't call her, we're going to call her. And she's going to sit right here. And she's going to tell you, he was unfaithful to me. He didn't do me right in our marriage. He didn't do me right. And you know what? He didn't take care of my little boy. He didn't take care of my little boy on that day. He didn't do our son right either. But she's also going to sit up here in this very chair and she's going to tell you. Ross Harris loved that little boy more than anything in the world. Despite what he's done to me. What he's done to us. What he's done to Cooper. And she's going to tell you. He was a wonderful father. A woman who's got every reason in the world to despise his guts. She's going to speak the truth. She's going to tell you. They got it wrong. They got it wrong. Thank you. 
Our frequent commentator, Marietta defense lawyer Ashley Merchant, watched the openings. She found strong performances on both sides. The strongest part of the prosecution's opening was really putting in the juror's mind this negative image of Ross Harris, this image that they're going to carry through the trial thinking he's a bad guy, painting him in a negative light, thinking that he's a a pervert and he's a criminal and he's a bad parent and he's a bad father, he's a bad husband. And so everything that the jury hears from that opening on, they're listening to with those, and you don't want to say rose-tinted glasses, it's actually black-tinted glasses. They're listening to it with that negativity in the back of their heads. And so that was the biggest strength of the state's opening. As for Kilgore's opening? I thought the defense did an excellent job in their opening statement of trying to get the jurors to view the state's evidence in a different light. And I think one of the strongest things that they did was point out the inconsistencies. And I mean, they didn't call Detective Stoddard a liar flat out, but they said essentially that he had lied previously and that he had misled the judge in the warrant application and in the preliminary hearing. And they brought out a lot of those inconsistencies. And I think that was very smart of them because now the jury should be hearing all of the state's witnesses with a bit of skepticism. The defense had to own up to everything. And I think that 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 set the tone for them. You know, look, he's we're not arguing that he's a great guy. We're not arguing that he's a, a good dad. You know, they're arguing that the state hasn't proved that he meant to kill his child. And they're, they're arguing that he didn't want his son dead. Um, and so I think they have to own that. Lawrence Zimmerman, Leanna Taylor's lawyer, said he felt a sense of relief when he sat in the courtroom and watched Kilgore's opening statement. And he confirmed that what Kilgore said is what he expects Leanna to say. And she has every reason to walk away, not want to testify, and not set the record straight. But she wants to set the record straight. There's no doubt in her mind that he was a good father. After openings, and before the hurricane, the prosecution called to the stand the first police officers to arrive at the scene. They also called witnesses who were in the Acres Mill shopping center that afternoon, when Harris pulled in, screeched to a halt, pulled Cooper from the car, and began screaming, My God, what have I done? The witnesses gave prosecutors some testimony they wanted to hear, while others, well, not so much. James Hawkins, who was working at a nearby restaurant, said he approached the scene to see what was going on. He saw Harris kneeling down next to Cooper's body on the ground. He appeared to be trying to administer CPR. But whatever Harris was doing, it wasn't right, Hawkins said. So he moved Harris out of the way and started doing CPR himself. But Hawkins said it only took two breaths for him to realize the child was dead. When describing what Cooper looked like, Hawkins, who had just lost a daughter the previous year, broke down on the stand. You're gonna hear a long pause after his first few words. That's because he took the time to reach for a tissue and cover his mouth with it. Pale yellow. His eyes were fogged up. You see the blood in his blood veins. His tongue was sticking out. Blood was coming down where he was gritting. His hands were clenched. And just, you know, <laughs> straight up dead. Here's Ashley Womack. She had just arrived at a Mexican restaurant to meet some co-workers. Upon hearing Harris's wails, she said her first thought was, It's too early for somebody to have had that many tequila shots. 
so she walked over to see what was going on. Womack, who's now pregnant, said she called 911 after seeing Cooper's body on the ground. She testified that she couldn't understand Harris's behavior. I thought at the time, I thought it was odd that he wasn't, I obviously assumed that that was the baby's father. I thought it was odd that a parent wouldn't be on the ground with their child. I haven't had this baby yet, and this is my first baby, but I would imagine that I would just be on the ground trying to do everything I could to put life back into my child. Um, and so I thought that that was strange that that wasn't happening. That's most definitely one of the primary themes of the state's case, that Harris didn't act like someone who just killed his beloved child by accident. Boring asked a number of witnesses that very question. Hawkins' co-worker that day was a guy named T.J. Pantano. When he got to the scene, Pantano testified, he told Harris to focus and administer CPR on his son. Now, this was an interesting moment in the trial. Boring asked Pantano the question. Did, did his behavior, uh, from what you observed, appear, appear consistent with somebody that had just observed their child dead? And this time, the defense objected. Pantano should not have been allowed to give his opinion on such a thing, Kilgore told the judge. Judge Staley Clark then asked Boring why he should be allowed to ask that question. I found Boring's response a bit hard to follow. I think it's a lay opinion that he's allowed to give whether it's consistent or inconsistent. He's not giving an opinion on whether uh, a veracity or anything like that. Staley Clark must have followed it. She overruled Kilgore's objection, allowing Boring to ask Pantano the question again. Did it appear consistent or inconsistent with somebody who had just put their, pulled their child dead out of a car from no. everything you personally observed? Not personally, no. I, I don't. For me, I mean, it was, I guess I could only relate to the fact if it was my child that mm -hmm. I don't. I would have been, you know, more upset, I believe, and don't think I would have left my child, period. Should the judge have sustained the objection and barred that question? Ashley Merchant, the criminal defense lawyer, sure thought so. I am sitting there listening to this evidence, wanting to scream out objections. <laughs> it is hard for me because I just want to object. And in my head, I'm arguing, you know, why these, these questions aren't relevant and why, you know, it's, it's a lay opinion. You can't ask all these witnesses if they thought that he acted appropriately. First of all, I, I hope that the jury is smart enough to realize that whether or not you act a certain way has absolutely nothing to do with guilt or innocence. Everybody deals with trauma different. So I hope that they can see around that. Um, but I wish that the judge wouldn't let him keep asking these questions. Um, I mean, it's just opinion testimony. Who's to say if he acted appropriately or not? The jury is supposed to decide whether or not he acted appropriately and whether or not he, I mean, this is what we would consider an ultimate issue. But Pantano also said something from the witness stand that Boring didn't want to hear. In his opening, Boring said police officers will testify that when they stuck their heads into Harris's SUV, they smelled a strong stench because Cooper's body had lain there for hours. The inference is, if that were the case, why didn't Harris smell the odor the moment he got into his car that afternoon? How could he have driven a few miles without noticing it before wheeling into the Acres Mill parking lot? But Pantano, who said he helped Harris pull Cooper out of the SUV, testified he didn't smell a strong odor inside the car. This prompted Boring to ask a most unusual follow-up question that I found to be bordering on the surreal. Is it possible it did smell inside the car, 
but you just didn't notice, Boring asked. Again, Kilgore objected, and again, Staley Clark overruled him. Asked the question that way, Pantano said, he reckoned that could have been the case. Other witnesses also testified they thought Harris did not act like someone who just lost a child. Atika Eastland had just arrived at Cinco, the nearby Mexican restaurant. She saw Cooper on the ground and, later, Harris when he was handcuffed and placed in the patrol car. Harris boring questioning Eastland about the times Harris cried out from inside the squad car. Did you notice anything um, out of the ordinary that struck you about his behavior in the back of the car? Um, that he kept turning around to, you know, I guess, to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And at any point during these times, he would turn around. Were there moments when he would do something that struck you? Um, yeah. Okay. Would you tell us about that? Um, well, for me, it was just the, the, the franticness and then the, the being very calm and then turning up like as if it was um, uh, not made up, but as if it was, wasn't sincere. Well, that seemed a bit damaging, that maybe Harris was faking his sorrow. But Kilgore, while cross-examining Eastland, reminded her of what she told Cobb police in a videotaped interview more than two years ago. And um, do you remember that when you talked to Detective Murphy on July the 9th, 2014, he specifically asked you, did anything seem suspicious? And you said nothing seemed suspicious. No, I don't remember that at all. So you have to ask, was her memory better three weeks after the incident or two years after the incident? Finally, there was Cobb police officer Brett Gallimore. He was at the scene and also offered damaging testimony, saying he thought Harris was acting hysterical and grief-stricken. Um, and what do you mean by that? What do you mean by hysterical and upset or acting like that? I mean, like, when I say he was acting hysterical, I literally mean I felt like he was acting hysterical. Not genuine, but acting. Under cross-examination, Kilgore reminded Gallimore that he made no mention of suspicious or manufactured behavior in the police report he wrote shortly after the incident. In fact, Gallimore wrote that Harris was, quote, extremely upset, unquote, at the scene. Kilgore asked the judge to admit Gallimore's police report as evidence, but the prosecution objected and the judge said no. I couldn't quite believe that the judge would not accept a police report as evidence. It was, after all, a police report. And it was Gallimore's police report. Kilgore couldn't believe it either. After the jury was sent home for the long weekend, Kilgore told the judge he should have been allowed to confront Gallimore with his own police report to impeach his testimony. This witness, uh, what the court just heard, came out of the box with stuff that was not in his report clearly against his report, was totally and completely different. And we had the right in defending Mr. Harris to bust him on it and to show the jury exactly what was in his written report. And uh, because of that, it's our position that our uh, right to a thorough and sifting cross-examination has been, has been abridged. So I'm going to ask for a mistrial. Now that would have been the mother of all stops and starts, a mistrial. But Staley Clark denied that request. Instead, she said, She'll revisit the issue after the trial starts back up again. So, we've definitely got a ball game here. With any luck, the trial will return, provided there are no more interruptions from Mother Nature. Next, on Breakdown. 
the prosecution continues to make its case against Justin Ross Harris. How his wife got mad at him when he wanted to go out. How five minutes before he locked that child in the car, or ten minutes before he locked that child in the car, he needed an escape. And in finishing that conversation, while he ostensibly was forgetting this child, about a minute before he pulled into the parking lot at his work. That's what this case is about, ladies and gentlemen. Defendant driving 0.6 miles from Chick-fil-A, and instead of taking the child to daycare, he did routinely go to work and let the child in the car. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.